So we're doing a little, little short little mini-series here on love. Last week we talked about love and marriage. We got some pretty good feedback from that. This morning we're going to talk about love and relationships. Uh, so if you want to, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody is familiar with that chapter most likely. We're going to kind of go through that verse by verse uh, this morning. Uh, before I get started... It's, it's a, a man's birthday in here this morning. Bill full of love. I don't know if you know him over there. I don't know if you know Bill. He's all the way out from out west, like in Nevada, or I, I can't even remember where it's from. It's somewhere. <laughs> I think it is Nevada. And his last name, Bill and Tish, their last name is literally full of love. They're full of love, folks. Them two right there are. Say, say happy birthday, Bill. Happy birthday, Bill. Amen. Amen. I, if, it, if it's your, anybody else in here got a birthday today? No way? Everybody good? Praise God. Well... Happy birthday, Bill, and uh, it fits the message, full of love, so that's what we want to be. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 5, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Or resentful. How many of y'all were irritable this morning? Just that, that word right there, like, you know what I'm saying? It's tough. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray together over this word. Father, we just thank you for your word because we believe that it is living, it's active, and it's powerful. And God, this is a word that we need to hear. These are scriptures that are so familiar to us that God, whenever we read them, we need your spirit to bring life to it so that it will cut like a two-edged sword into our hearts so that God, at the end of the day, we can recognize and know and, and pray, Lord, that your spirit would do a work in our hearts so that our motives, everything that we do, the words that we speak would flow from a place that is rooted and grounded in your love for us, God. And so we ask you, Lord, to do your work in us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was kind of a very interesting church, really. If you read, he wrote two letters to them in the Bible that we have. And when he wrote to them, they were a really good church. Like they had, they had moved of God in their church. There were gifts of the Spirit operating. They had some very talented, very gifted people. Uh, pe people that were really moving forward in the faith and that miracles were happening. I mean, just amazing things were happening in the Corinthian church. But their problem was, is they had a little bit of issue with pride and they had some character defects that Paul deals with right out of the gate. And he starts to talk to them about the fact that there's divisions among them. He says, look, I'd love to speak to you as spiritual people. And I know that you think you're spiritual people because, you, you know, you go around doing all these spiritual things. But when we get right down to the heart of it, there's still jealousy. 
jealousy among you. There's still strife among you. There's still divisions among you. You guys are quarreling about some weird things. And when people look in from the outside, what they're not seeing is your love. They're seeing your division and your strife, regardless of how spiritual you think you are on the outside. Now, he lists some things that honestly I, I want to experience. Like he said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, right? I'm nothing. If I have prophetic powers and I have insights into people's life and into things going on around the world and I can preach the word of God with a power that convicts hearts, but he says, I have not love. He said, it doesn't mean anything. And he goes into all of these things. If we can have faith that will move mountains and raise the dead and perform miracles, he says, you can have that and those things are great and we want them, but if they are not rooted and grounded in love and moving toward the place of love, he said, you might as well just set them aside because you're missing the entire picture. And he's trying to do something in the Corinthians' hearts to get their hearts open to the reality that the most important thing is love. Now, I tell, I tell our church all the time because we talk about spiritual gifts and we talk about love, right? And what do we Say all, I say this all the time. I say, if you go, if you're passing by on the road and you see a $5 bill and a $100 bill, which one do you pick up? You pick up both. Praise God. See, y'all are well trained. You may say, well, the spiritual gifts, they're not important. Love is what's important. Well, both of them are important. And this is why love is what holds everything together. Spiritual gifts may be the $5 bill, but if it's sitting by the hundred, I'm going to pick it up too because I want everything that God has to offer me. Amen. But at the same time, see what happens in a church that often pursues spiritual gifts and we're anointed to do all these amazing things is we can get into a place where our motives become a little bit self-centered and we want the glory for ourselves. And instead of bringing the glory to God, we start turning inward as a church, inward as an individual. And all of a sudden divisions start coming up in the church because we lack humility. And so he starts to address this, and I love so many of the things that he says because all of these things, like I said, are to be pursued. But see, all of these externals are not good measurements for, to assess how we're doing. Like you can't assess how we're doing it. Well, how y'all doing as a church, buddy? Our numbers, are, we're growing. Terrible assessment. Amen. How y'all doing as a church down there at City of Hope? Buddy, we got one of the best worship teams. I mean, they play so well. I mean, we got preachers, Forrest, Matt, Jeremy, some of these, Alan Bray come up, man, they'll preach, dude, and some of the best sermons you've ever heard. Bad assessment. Because he says all of these external, you can have a one, man, they're building down there. It looks beautiful now. They painted it black. I don't know about that. Uh... What are they, a gothic church? <laughs> um, you can have a beautiful building. You can have the best car. We put Starbucks out there if we wanted to. You know what I'm saying? We could do, have all of those things, but if at the end we do not have love, we have nothing. We have nothing. And that is the point that he is trying to make. And see, Jesus was the kind of lover that made him attractive. And what was so interesting is Jesus loved people in such a way that literally prostitutes, outcasts, tax collectors were attracted to Jesus because he was that kind of a lover. Like he didn't look at the church. And this is one of the things that's so interesting to me because I think people in the world, when I have conversations, I think people in the world don't avoid the church because the church has disagreements. I think people avoid the church because of how they treat people because of their disagreements. 
Now, we may disagree theologically. Maybe somebody disagrees with me doctrinally down the road at another church, but we are of the same kingdom. And we can have minor disagreements, but still be within the same kingdom and love one another. But the problem is we divide over some of the most pharisaical, nitpicky little things. And we don't have love for one another anymore. And then we have jealousy and division and strife within the church. And it happens, but it happens with churches that are separate and it happens within the church as well. And he says, look, you can have some of these things, but at the end of the day, you've got to have love. But see, people would see they're critical, the Pharisees critical, divisive, condemning and controlling spirit. And they said, we don't want that. If that's God, then we don't want that. Amen. But we do want this Jesus because we see this kind of love in him. So number one, let me get into this. I've got about nine points, which is Donald Sims says that's more than a porcupine, but we're going to get through it. Number one, love is not a feeling. And our culture almost exclusively identifies love as a feeling. It's like something, you know, that you fall into and out of. It's like a rash that you get for a minute. You get hot, you know, you get cold all of a sudden. You get goosebumps, you get butterflies and all that stuff. I remember, you know, we were talking about love and marriage last week. Andre and I had been dating for quite some time, I remember, and we were driving down the road, and all of a sudden she reached over and touched my hand. And it was like I got electrocuted all of a sudden, you know what I'm saying? And I realized in that moment, a feeling rushed over me, chemical reactions went off in my brain, and I realized I'm in love. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And that, that's the kind of stuff that we ride on in American culture. We think love is, on a, is based completely on how we feel in a moment. Can I tell you that feelings are really just a chemical reaction in your brain? That's all that it is. I could literally walk up to one person in this church this morning and say, Hey, buddy, you're dumb, fat, and ugly. And they'd just laugh and say, You're crazy, man. And then I could walk over to another person and say, hey, you're dumb, fat, and ugly, and they would, it would crush their soul. How does the same thing cause different responses and different feelings because of how they've been shaped, because of how they've been molded? And it causes different feelings because it's a reaction in the brain. And truth is not always guaranteed by how you feel, is it? You may come in here this morning and say, man, I don't feel like God loves me. It doesn't change the fact that He does. I don't care this morning what you feel about how God's love. God loves you whether you feel it in your heart, whether you feel it in your mind or not. And see, sometimes you have to get to the fact that you let God's truth, God's word be the truth and every other input in your life a liar. And let, sometimes your feelings are going to lie to you. Sometimes how you feel is going to lie to you. You've got to go back to the word of God. Let his truth saturate your soul. And you've got to know that you know that God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And renew your mind to the reality of God's truth. But see, this is interesting because in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, notice what it says. This is a popular verse. It says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Isn't that interesting? Like a lot of times I figure it, more than loving our enemies, sometimes we try to create enemies over subtle differences. I'm thinking that should not be the case, but it says do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. But see, there's no way that a person could love their enemies if they go based on their feelings, because guess what? The fact that a person is an enemy means that you don't feel that great about them. You know what I'm talking about? So love is not a feeling. You don't, you don't love somebody because you feel it. You love somebody in obedience to the truth of who God is and who He's called you to be. 
Now, there's four words for love, and this is kind of, uh, this is background, this is review for those of us who have been uh, students here for a little bit, but there's four words for love, and I like going through it because in the Greek language, we, 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 we love everything. Like, like, I can love my spouse and also at the same time love a Marlboro Light. You know what I'm talking about? Like, how is that? I love Mountain Dew. Well, praise God, you know. I mean, like, I love you as a brother and Lord. I mean, and, and, and it's like, this is, it gets mixed up in translation. It's just, it's just a word that gets used for all kinds of things. And then our culture says, well, love is love. What does that even mean? If love is love, what is love? You know what I'm saying? Like, define it for me. Tell me what it is. So storge is one Greek word for love, and it is an affection or a liking of something. It's just like, hey, man, I love that jacket. You know what I'm saying? And we say stuff like that, but it's a different kind of love than biblical love we're talking about. Secondly, this is a word used in Scripture a lot. Jesus used it when he was talking to Peter quite a bit. And he said, Peter, do you phileo me? And it's a friendship kind of a love. Peter said, Lord, you know I only love you with a friendship kind of love, not with a self-sacrificial kind of love. Eros is an erotic, romantic, sensual, sexual love. And really, in American culture, this is the kind of love we, we, we think about when we think about love. That stuff that gets in your feels. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, then, and then lastly is agape love. And this is the love of 1 Corinthians 13. And this is self-sacrificial, self-giving, other-oriented love. Now, storge and eros is all about feelings. You look at something, you feel some, something, you experience something with somebody else and your feelings go off. You have a chemical reaction. You say, oh, man, I love that. Phileo love is a love that you may not have feelings for, but you just grow to really like somebody to the point that you say, man, this person is my friend and I love this person. I'll be, I, I want to have a relationship with them. But agape moves a little bit differently. And number two, love is a commitment to ascribe worth to another at a cost to oneself. I want you to think about that. Love is a commitment to ascribe worth to another at a cost to oneself. See, love is demonstrated in the fact that Jesus saw you when you were worth nothing, when you were still a sinner, and to him you were worth everything. And he said, I'm willing to lay down my life so that they would know their value that they would know their worth. And there's so many people in this world, they don't know their value in God. They don't know their worth in God. And the love that Christians are called to demonstrate is a love that ascribes worth even if it costs ourselves something. And so it's a commitment to act and it's blind and it's got nothing to do with the outward merits of a person. And it's ascribing worth that, a, that God ascribes to a person. And you start to see that person as God sees them, regardless of what the world thinks about them. You see their value and their worth in the image of God in them. And you pour that out on them, even if it costs you something to do so. Now, when he's talking, this is agape love. And so he starts to list. This is how, this is how love plays out in 1 Corinthians. 13 if you stay right there we're going to go through it verse by verse so to speak but he says this kind of love that is self-sacrificial self-giving self, -giving, self uh, other oriented love he says the first thing that this love is is patient love is patient now, I want you to think about that just for a minute because patience is difficult nowadays isn't it and Paul's not necessarily saying you need to try harder to duplicate patient behavior no he's saying that when you are functioning from this place of love and the love of God is in your heart, people recognize it because you are becoming a patient person. And so what prevents us from being patient? I know y'all love the Greek words, so I'm going to tell you what patience is. It's macrothymia. Macro, y'all know what macro is. It's big, right? It's long. 
macro. Thymos is anger or rage. And so he's saying you are long to, to get hot-tempered and angry. It takes you a long time. That's what patience is. You're long-suffering. You're not just quick-tempered and going to go off at the drop of a hat over some little thing that happens. You are a patient person. But see, we need to understand this in the context of anger because it's tied into what the word actually is. So there's three Greek words for anger. Y'all ready for this? I'm giving, we're, we're having a Bible study this morning. Three Greek words for anger. Number one, orge is a swelling, and it means when something we value is devalued by someone else. Something we value is devalued by someone else. Now notice, you know that in the Bible, Jesus was only angry that we know of one time. One time the Bible says that Jesus looked on them with anger. And the one time that he was angry is when he went to the temple on the Sabbath day and a man showed up with a withered hand and Jesus walked toward him and the Pharisees, the religious people, looked to see if he was going to heal this man or not. And he knew their hearts that they were aggravated because he was about to minister healing to this man on the Sabbath. And he turned and looked at them with anger. Why? Because they did not value human life on the same level that he valued human life. That means that you can actually be angry and it not necessarily be sin because you value what God values and you see other people not valuing what God values. So you can have a righteous and a holy anger when people stop valuing human life. And that's the most uh, normal type of anger. But there is another word, and it's paraorgismos. And this is anger down under or submerged anger or anger that is slowly built up. You know how little things happen in your life? Somebody aggravates you, somebody bothers you a little bit, and you're just like, well, I'm all right, uh, and you push it down, don't you? And then you let a week goes, go by, and then they do something again. Oh, 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 and now I'm about to really lose it, you know. But, but you push it down again. And this can often be translated bitterness. Because after you push it down enough, it starts to infect your heart. You start to sense that bitterness building up, and you're just you're like a ticking time bomb. How many of y'all ever done that? Like even in your marriage relationships, you keep pushing it down, you keep pushing it down, and then all of a sudden you just blow up. I, I saw somebody right then, you know what I'm talking about, amen? Tony, I saw you back there. I saw that <laughs> Sometimes mine and Andrea is uh, really, really, it's like I, I was such a bad husband for, for, for a long period of time, and she kept pushing it down, and then she just blow up one day. I'm like, where'd this come from? And then she just unloaded all, you know, all the things that I've done up to that point. We're like, well, we probably need to have a talk. Okay. I missed it a few times. But then lastly is thymos or explosive anger because when you push it down long enough, finally it brings you to a place where you explode. And this is why Ephesians 4 verse 26 and 27 says, Be angry or gay. You have a normal anger because somebody devalues what should be valued. But do not sin. You can be angry and not sin. You can, you can find ways to channel your frustrations and respond in love rather than responding in sin. It's okay to be angry. It's what you do with that anger that really matters at the end of the day, whether or not you respond in love or you respond in another way. So he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Get Look there, parogismos. You know what I'm talking about, Brandy, right? So, 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 so you get messed with, you get angry, you submerge it. And he's saying, if you let the sun go down on what you have pushed down, he says, that is going to infect your heart and cause bitterness long term. This is why when things go wrong, the best thing you can do is confront a brother or sister and talk it out and let what's on your heart 
out on the surface and forgive one another and deal with it. Amen. Next verse, he says, give no opportunity to the devil. When you submerge that anger and hold on to it, you are opening the door for the devil to begin to run roughshod and cause division among brothers and sisters. See, so we can see that it's appropriate to be angry, but not swallow that anger unless it becomes bitterness. But the problem is, is that we're broken lovers and sometimes we value the wrong things. You know what I'm talking about? Like you can value your time so much that if somebody just inconveniences you a little bit, you get mad and fire at them. That's like while you're driving down the road, you're trying to get somewhere at a certain time and somebody's driving 42 miles an hour in a 55, you know what I'm saying? And you're just like, and it inconveniences you and they don't value the rate at which you're trying to get where you're going. So you get, you blow up. Amen. And if I value myself, when you find yourself getting angry regularly, what it really means is that you have a deep-seated, deep-rooted selfishness because you value yourself and what you want when you want it and everybody else is supposed to tend to your needs and your desires and you want your wants. And when they don't tend to exactly what you want when you want it because you are your greatest value, you get upset at them. Man, that's good preaching right there this morning. If y'all will receive that this morning, this will be life-changing. And this is why we don't have patience because we put ourselves above everyone else. You're here to tend to my needs. You're here to bless me. You're here to help me. And if you don't do that, I'm going to be aggravated with you. And I'm not going to be patient with you. I'm going to be frustrated because you're causing me to be inconvenienced in my life right now. And so you got to ask yourself, why, what am I loving so much right now that is making me respond this way? And when I finally realize that I can respond differently, this is why he says love is patient. And then the next one, number four, what? Love is kind. So he's saying, you get angry at somebody, you don't get angry quickly. Instead, you choose to pull back into love and you respond with kindness. Now, I, I got a def my own definition of kindness. And my definition is undeserved blessing that causes someone to realize they're valuable, loved, and cared for. Undeserved blessing that causes someone to realize they're valuable, they're loved, and they're cared for. Now, they don't deserve it. They probably just aggravated you. But kindness looks at them with value, with, with worth, with dignity. No matter what kind of background they've had, no matter, no matter what they've done to you, they don't necessarily deserve it, but you choose to bless them anyway because they are God's child and they need to experience His kindness. You know why? Because you experienced the kindness of God when you were still in your sins. And when we forget that, when we forget the immense kindness that God has shown us in Jesus Christ, it becomes increasingly difficult for us to show kindness to others that have treated us the same way. Number five, he goes on to say, you know what, love, it does not envy and it does not boast. <laughs> I, was, I was watching the three-point competition last night on NBA. Anybody else check that out last night? Yeah. Uh, I was watching that, and I, I tell you, the, like the, half, the Super Bowl, and I was just sitting there thinking about boasting because I think in terms of the church, and I'm like, you know, I don't run into people in the church that boast a whole lot. I, I, I don't, you don't find anybody. You know, you know what, son? I'm one of the baddest worship leaders that's ever existed. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just a, you know what? They told me I couldn't do it. Look at me now, you know? But you watch like the, you watch like the halftime shows and stuff, and all rap music is, and, and, and you know, Bless your heart if, you, if that's your primary digesting of music. But all they sing about is literally they boast. They sing about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are 1 John 2.15 in lyrical form. 
Money, women, cars, clothes. I'm bad. You know, I mean, that's essentially every song written. And I'm thinking, if you do listen to that, at least acknowledge the absurdity of it. Okay, that's, that's, that's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking. At least acknowledge the absurdity of what they are actually singing about because it is poisoning our children and they get rooted in this thing where they're boasting all the time and, and, and it's, it's the craziest stuff to me. But on the other hand, I think that same mindset of, of, of the boasting, envy is, is a big deal. And envy is a little bit different because envy hides in human hearts. It hides in human hearts. You can do a good job of masking envy. But let me say this, to love is to seek others' good, if you would put that up. To love is to seek others' good and rejoice when they have it. When others have good, you rejoice. To envy is to desire the destruction of others, the destruction of others' good, and sorrow over their having it. You actually want people to fail. Now, you would never in a million years come out and say that. But somewhere lurking deep down in your heart, when you see other people gifted and doing well and successful and, and all of those things, in your heart you say, I hope they lose it. And in your heart you would rejoice if they did. Man, that's sinister, isn't it? And envy's so wicked, like I said, because none of us in here would come out and voice that that's in our hearts but sometimes when we see other people doing well deep down, if we look deep enough, it's not, we don't want their good. And we won't rejoice when we see them succeeding. We won't rejoice when we see them doing well. And here's the thing about envy is envy is idol specific. Now let me break this down for you. If someone gets an award for swimming, I don't care. You know why? Because I don't swim. I can literally go up to somebody that won the swimming championship and come up to them and say, man, I am genuinely happy for you. That's amazing. You are a swimming outfit. <laughs> I can do that because I don't swim. But if they come and they play my game that I'm supposed to be the one that's good at, that I'm supposed, you know what I'm saying? It, maybe a preacher comes up and he's a little bit better preacher than me. I'm like, yeah, he ain't much. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Uh, and that stuff gets in our hearts, doesn't it? It's not a, it's idol specific. It's when somebody encroaches on your territory doing what you want the glory for, what you want to be recognized for. It's hard to celebrate that person. All you can do is, and when envy manifests itself, it tears others down in gossip and criticism. And that's why, that's why when churches envy one another, what do they do? They spend all their time talking bad about other churches. Spend your time on something better, friends. Bless a church. Bless a pastor. Bless somebody out there. And, and, and here's the thing. No matter what it is, and you, you know, you know, I mean, whether it be your job, your workplace, uh, I don't know what, what you're in, but somebody that's doing the same stuff you're doing, winning awards that you should be getting, you know what I'm saying, getting the praise and the, and, and the acclaim that you should be receiving, you get aggravated and it's hiding down there in your heart and you're wondering, I don't know about this. And that's important to pay attention to because it absolutely undermines love. We have to be able to celebrate others. They are your partner in seeking to glorify God. And so I've got a little quote here. I want you to read this by Thomas Watson with me. I love this. He says, A humble man is willing to have his name and gifts eclipsed 
so that God's glory may be increased. He is content to be outshone by others so that the crown of Christ may shine brighter. A humble Christian is content to be laid aside if God has other tools to work with which may bring him more glory. This is the humble man's motto, let me decrease, let Christ increase. It is his desire that Christ should be exalted and if this is affected, whoever is the instrument, he rejoices. And the question is, can you rejoice when God uses someone else to get the glory for his name? Amen. And that's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging for all of us because we tend to want to be the dude. And what that leads to in number six is, see, he says again, love is not arrogant and it's also not rude. Love is not arrogant and it's not rude. And arrogance really is an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. And it's an offensive and condescending attitude of superiority. Now, you may not come and say it, Again, these are things that we as Christians, we can't come out and say this. You know what? I'm arrogant. If you, if you weren't arrogant, you wouldn't say that, right? So, so these are things that hide down in our hearts, but it's a, it's a sense that deep down we think, man, I'm better than you, and I'm always right, and everyone else is wrong. I'm the right one. My way goes. Your way, you need to hold off. And I'm going to be right, and, and, and these folks are wrong. And, you, and you're unwilling to receive any kind of criticism, any kind of correction, any kind of somebody imposing on this, making you... You know, this is one of the reasons Donald Sims, one of, one of my overseers back here this morning, and I don't want to puff him up because he's a humble man, amen, but... But Donald and I, and I think this is important because I will tell people, some, we, we were in here yesterday, and a couple of, there were like five pastors in here yesterday. And I talked to a few of them, and they were asking about our story and our church and where it came from, and I gave them the history. I told them about Donald Sims. One of them actually knew you, Donald. And, but every time I talk about our transition, between, and they're like, they're like man, how, I can, how'd that work out? Well, I can't believe that worked out. Because in every situation where they have seen one pastor hand the pastor down to another pastor, they've seen absolute division and turmoil and arrogance and pride. And I said, look, here's the thing. Everything that we did when we were transitioning, I said, Donald Sims is a humble man. And he put up no resistance. He made it easy for me. And he was willing to hand it off. And he was willing to decrease in that particular position in order to allow God to move him in another position. And he allowed me to increase. And that's called humility. And, e and even when I went to Donald, because there's, there's things too, like when, when you're dealing with people, you're afraid to go and talk to them about things. Listen, when you're dealing in relationships with people, and especially if you're working with people every day, Donald and I, we work together every day of our lives for, for, for several years. And we would have disagreements, and sometimes I would be afraid to go to him because I'd be afraid of how he might respond. But every time that I went to him, he was humble enough to receive what I was saying and say, you know what? We'll work on that. He didn't get angry. He didn't get offended. He said, you're pro you may be right. I'll pray about this. Let's work. And he was able to come to me when he needed to. And so we developed a relationship. And because of that, I'm, I honor him. And I honor that because he had the humility to be able to receive someone saying, hey, man, I, I, I feel this way about something. 
You know what I mean? And, and when we don't have that in the church, man, that is why we split and we divide and we hate and we get angry and we tear down and we gossip and we criticize and we, and we, and we pull down other people and other churches because we can't have conversations and at the end of the day say, you know what, I love you. I love you and I'm willing to yield and I'm willing to not be arrogant. I'll humble myself. But see, when we are not humble and we are arrogant, we become rude, offensively ill ill-mannered or impolite. We see people as instruments that should be there to benefit us, our happiness, our success, our wants, and if they don't, they are expendable and aggravating. And we respond to them with little short passive-aggressive comments. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody in here ever been rude? Praise God. Little short, little passive-aggressive comments. Just come out and deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Just come out and deal with it. There's no use in treating people beneath you. We move not towards rudeness, but toward kindness, undeserved blessing that, 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 that they didn't do anything to earn. But now they know that you value them, that you set them above yourself. See, when you're arrogant, you become the center and then everybody else is underneath you. So it's no problem to condescend to the people around you. But we as Christians are called to seek not our own, but the benefit of another. To come up under one another. True leaders don't power over. They bring their power up under and lift people around them up. Amen. And we think that power is demonstrated by authority over telling people what to do when power is demonstrated by authority under lifting people up and serving them and giving them more of ourselves. And so when we're dealing with this, sometimes even we deal, we manifest our rudeness in, in different ways. But sometimes uh, rudeness can even manifest in evangelism. You know what I'm talking about? Like us Christians, we can start looking at lost people as like a project or someone to be converted. And when we do that and we don't look at them with human dignity and realize who they are, that God loves them, that they're just at a different place in life right now than you are. You're no better than them just because God chose to save you and not them at this particular time. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they, could, they could get saved and become more sanctified than you are in about two months. Amen. So there's no call in looking down at them or being rude to them. So in evangelism, we need to treat people with infinite dignity and worth instead of potential converts, problems to be fixed, opponents to be refuted, or evil to be crushed. Amen. Number seven, love does not insist on its own way, he says. How many of y'all, you insist on your own way? You just like, I got to get mine. I got to get my own way. And I get that. I mean, I think all of us, we do that to some degree. But there's, there, there's something in love that when you're fighting for your way, you're willing to yield. You're willing to take a deep breath and say, man, I don't have to be in control here. Love lets go. Love yields. It's not my way or the highway. I need to be open. I need to be willing to yield to people because ultimately God's in control. I can, I can love and I can lead and I can guide and I can do things. I can even give my opinion. But I'm not insisting upon my own way because I am not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. The problem with sin at its core is that when sin infected the earth, it turned people's hearts from God being the center to us being the center. And when we are the center, we fall into this place where we start to really insist in our own way. And that's why number eight, when we insist on our own way, we become irritable or resentful. 
But love is not irritable or, re or resentful. It doesn't get aggravated at the drop of a hat. It doesn't get irritable at the drop of a hat. But again, you've got to ask yourself this question this morning. How often do little things happen that cause you minor inconveniences and you just get irritable and you stay irritable? I've got to be honest with you. I'm going to confess this morning. There are things that happen. I get irritable. And I've got to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, this is not love. This is not how. I talked to Andre this week about some things that was going on because I tend to get overwhelmed when a lot of things are happening all at once. And I told her, I said, now, can, you, can you tell I'm doing a little bit better? Like, give, give me a little bit of praise. I, I, need some, I need some help here. I'm not boasting, but I'm doing better, right? She said, well, you still got a little bit to go. So, but you can get irritable when you can't control people. I've seen leaders and pastors get irritable at people when they couldn't control people. And the truth is you can't control nobody. You, can't, you can lovingly lead people, but you cannot control anyone. And so we're not called to be irritable. We're called to be a community of love. And we must spend less time trying to solve all the ambiguities of life. Right now in the church, we'll argue more over whether or not it's Calvinism or Arminianism or whether tongues are for, for today instead of demonstrating the outrageous, non-judgmental love of Jesus Christ. You can find all kinds of arguments and doctrinal disagreements and we can sit down and fight over all of these things when at its root, those things are things that we should discuss, but we should discuss those things in the grounding of love. Our doctrine is important. It is essential. We should wrestle through these things, but if it is not rooted and grounded in love and if, if we get up from the table not being kind to one another, not being patient, not being loving, not willing to yield, not saying let's glorify Christ together in our minor disagreements, then all of a sudden we've missed the most important thing. We have missed love. And a community that is religious or gets life from the rightness of their beliefs or the rightness of their behaviors, you become hypervigilant about when people don't believe the way you believe or behave the way you think they ought to behave. And you start insisting on your own way. Well, they need to live like us. They need to believe like us. They need to think like us. And you know what people sense? They sense your judgmental criticism and your unrighteous anger. And you're not flowing to them from a place of love. Yeah, we have a very specific set of beliefs. And we should preach those beliefs. We should teach those beliefs. But there's a way that it is to be done, Scripture says. We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. And so you have to check the attitude of your heart when you're dealing with this or otherwise you're in danger of becoming a community of religious parasites that gets life out of sucking the life out of other people who aren't doing what you want them to be doing rather than revealing to them their unsurpassable worth in Jesus Christ. That's what we do. And so he's bringing us to this place where we love. And see, we don't get resentful we can have minor disagreements without getting resentful, without holding grudges. See, we can get bitter, we can get indignant, and we can hold grudges that lead to division. But I want you to understand this love always forgives. God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. And while they were nailing Him to that cross, He cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Fullest expression of love. Forgiveness for the people that were actually crucifying him 
in that moment. He didn't wait. He didn't say, well, I'll get over this once I get up to heaven and sit down at the right hand of the throne and work through it a little bit. No, he forgave you in the act of doing it. It was you and me that put him on that cross. We nailed those nails into his hands. That was our sin. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And this is why when we function from a place of love, we don't hold grudges. We don't, we're not walking around in resentment. We see the people that have hurt us, that have affected us, that have caused bitterness into our own hearts. And we say, Lord, help me here. I, I, I need to forgive this person. I need to release this person. I need to work through this. And I need to let you heal my heart. And here's my last point, number nine. We've had a full porcupine. Love never ends. Love never ends. And I love this. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 through 13. Let's finish this passage. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You know, there's a, there's a dispensational theology that, that, I know that's a big word, I shouldn't have used it, my bad. But it, lots of people believe in it, and, and, and part of what they believe is that somehow what he's saying here is that the perfect that has come is the Bible, and now that we have the Bible, there is no more prophecies or miracles or healings or tongues, and those things have ceased. But see, he's actually speaking into a, into a future context, okay? And this is why if you, if you were to read in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, he says, I don't want you to lack in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to function in the fullness of the gifts of the Spirit until the Lord comes back. And when that perfect that comes, the perfect, even though Scripture we believe is perfect and flawless, what he's speaking about is Christ himself returning from heaven, splitting the eastern sky. And he says, then now we know in part, we prophesy in part. We see things in part. We see through a mirror dimly. But then we shall see love face to face in all of its fullness. And Christ will return. And he says, love never ends. He says, now abides these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Because I want you to understand something. When Jesus returns, nobody will have to prophesy for we will have full knowledge. When Jesus returns, you won't have to have a miracle because every miracle will be accomplished. You won't need anybody to be healed because everybody will be healed. You will need no more prophetic insight. All of these things will come into their fulfillment. He says, until that time, we need the Spirit of God to move in our midst. But you need to understand, even if you have all of these things moving in your midst and you don't have love at the center of it, you've got nothing. We need the power of God. We need a sound mind. He says, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, 1 Corinthians 12. Of love, 1 Corinthians 13. And a sound mind, 1 Corinthians 14. We need all of these things working together with love at the center. Amen. And Jesus is coming back and he says, man, we're going to see him face to face. And I'll be known. And I will fully know even as I am fully known. And he says, he's talking about when I was a child. When I, this is, we're in a child state right now. 
But when Jesus returns, we will be fully mature. And do you know that even when we see Jesus, faith and hope will no longer remain. We believe because we've not seen the fulfillment yet. We have hope because we've not seen the fulfillment yet. When we see Him, we will see the fulfillment. And the only thing that will remain is love. Fully manifested. Love fully manifested, destroying all sin, all fear, all anxiety. Every worry you've ever had, love overflowing that casts out all fear in a moment of time when you see Jesus Christ face to face. And that love, my friends, will never end. And when you and I are judged on the last day and we come before God, the fire will be put to the test of all the things that we've done, every deed in our body, every action, every word. And when He looks down and He puts the fire to it, the foundation of it will not be how good of a sermon I preached, but whether or not I preached it from love. The foundation will not be how good of a song we sung, but whether or not we sung it with love for God and for one another. Man, and it'll be, it'll be burnt. I imagine all the things that just in my life are not going to last because my motive was not love. I look at my heart, I get scared sometimes. And I think, Lord, please put this love in my heart for people. Put this love in my heart so that I can lead the way that I need to lead. 1 John 4.10, I'm finishing with this verse. In this is love, not that we loved God, but God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, eternal separation from God and hell was headed toward you wide open. And you know what Jesus did? He loved you so much, He stepped in front of you. And He said, I'll take that in their place because I love them that much. That is love fully demonstrated with a biblical definition. I want you to bow your heads right now. If you're here this morning and you have not experienced that love of God, maybe you come in here feeling that, that you don't even know if God loves you. I want, this morning, I believe that God's going to break down some chains. And it may just be for one person, but if you're that one person and you sense the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart's door this morning, and you want to open your heart to the love of God and say, I want to turn to Jesus. I want to receive salvation. I want Him to do a work in my heart. I want to be free from the things that I'm dealing with. Right now, just as an act of faith, would you raise your hand? Let me know that you, please. Anybody. I see two hands. Anybody else. I want us to pray together just for each person here. With the ones that raise your hand, I want you to pray with me. I want you to come up after we get done, but I want us to pray right now for each person. Father, we pray right now that by your Spirit, you would pour the love of God out in hearts. Lord God, we come to you and we confess and believe that you loved us so much, God, that you sent Jesus when we were sinners, when we were bound for destruction, and for hell and for eternal separation from you. You sent Jesus to die for us on the cross to be our substitute. That by His blood we could receive forgiveness. And so Lord, as we believe that, we confess our sins to you, God, and we ask you to forgive us and have mercy on us right now in this moment. Wash us clean from our sins. And Lord, we turn to you and we confess you as Lord because we believe that not only did you die, but you were raised again from the dead on the third day. And you ascended to the right hand of the Father. And you have all power and authority. 
And so, God, we ask you right now to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Pour your love into our hearts. And do a renewing work, Lord God, in the people that have known you. The people in here, Lord, that have known you for years, Lord God, but their love is growing cold. You said in the last days, Lord God, one sign would be that the love of many would grow cold. And I pray, God, let it not be to this church. Let it not be to this family, Lord God. Do not allow our love to grow cold, Father. Pour out your love in our hearts in a greater measure than ever before, God, and renew us to this reality of your love, Father, and solidify it in our hearts and in our minds. And we ask it in Jesus' name this morning, Lord. And amen. I want you to stand to your feet.